Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Staff Sergeant Robert Miller. Miller was a weapons sergeant serving with the Special Forces Operational Detachment 3312, or ODA 3312. That's part of the Special Operations Task Force 33, serving in Afghanistan in 2008. And the area we're going to talk about specifically during his action is in the Gordesh Valley, part of Kunar Province, Afghanistan, in January of that year. So northeast part of Afghanistan. Now, to provide a little context on Staff Sergeant Miller, I thought we'd talk just briefly about the U.S. Army Special Forces. And I think this is a term that we mix up a lot. We, Americans, mix this up a lot. Now, Special Forces refers to a U.S. Army unit, the U.S. Army Special Forces, also known as Green Berets. That is this, that is this group of which Robert Miller is a part. Now, Special Forces fall under the broader umbrella of Special Operations. Special Operations includes folks from the Air Force and the Navy and, and, and other units within the Army, but it's more of a, a broad statement, a broad term than special forces. Special forces, again, a specific unit within the army. And uh, Robert Miller is a part of one of their groups, I believe the third special forces group. Now, if we go back to when the, the creation of the army special forces was in the early 1950s, as kind of after the second world war, we reorganize militaries change and, and restructure and look at different mission sets. And the special forces were created to tackle a new type of mission that we saw might be coming, especially throughout the Cold War. Now, in World War II and, and all before that, most countries had elite units is the way that I, sh I might say it. We had the, and I'm going to miss some here, so bear with me, but units like the 101st Airborne Division in the Second World War or the 82nd Airborne Division, 10th Mountain. These units had more training. They were volunteer only. They, they maybe earned more money because they jumped out of airplanes. They had better equipment, newer equipment. They were, you know, in D-Day, for instance, on D-Day, Eisenhower was very hesitant to send them in certain areas because he didn't want to waste this resource. I mean, not to downplay all the other troops, but this was, this was considered, you know, the ace up the sleeve. These were the elite troops that he had at, at his disposal. That has changed throughout history because while those were elite troops for Eisenhower, they were still divisions and regiments and battalions. Those are huge formations, thousands, tens of thousands. With the creation of the Army Special Forces, we went a little bit of a different direction to a smaller unit. And that has proved incredibly valuable at the right time. And I think the right way, well, the way that I look at different military units is the comparison to tools. So for the right job, the right tool is perfect. For the wrong job, the wrong tool is um, either not going to get the job done or going to make it very, very challenging. So as an example, um, there's certain army units well-designed for certain roles. The U.S. Army Special Forces have a, uh, within their job description, if you will, includes things like unconventional warfare, foreign internal defense, training a foreign military to stand up and be able to defend themselves, direct action. So that's what you think of kicking in doors, going after maybe high value targets, counterinsurgency. It's big. 
should ring a bell for some of the conflicts we're in today and a few more, but it's a very specific mission set. And you compare that to what we ask of our conventional troops and it's just different. You know, if you're looking for somebody to hit the road and attack north into Baghdad in March, April 2003, you're not looking at a special forces team. You're looking at a U.S. Army or Marine armor unit like the 3rd Infantry Division or the 1st Cav or someone with tanks and Bradleys or strikers to take on a set military like the Republican Guard in Iraq. Conversely, if you're looking for somebody to stand up a local police force in a remote valley in Afghanistan, you're probably not going to send a 120-man infantry unit from the U.S. Army that's designed to jump out of airplanes as needed out of Fort Bragg. There might be a better tool for that problem. The tool designed for that latter problem is the U.S. Army Special Forces. And as the war kicked off in 2001 in Afghanistan, they were some of the very first on the ground. Um, There were days after the towers fell, there were CIA personnel on the ground, and they were joined shortly thereafter by U.S. Army Special Forces. Now, there was a lot of politicking, of of course. In in all these things, there ends up being more politicking than than you would think. But this this was their bread and butter. This is, this is how they should be used. It's, it's a, it, it is, some of these actions are now studied as use cases as, as this is the correct or a, a very good application of unconventional warfare army special forces units. So these special forces units went in in 2001 and, and early 2002, and they paired up with local forces on the ground and worked in conjunction with Afghan units to push out our common enemy, Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters at that time. And the special forces soldiers, what they brought to the fight was technology, resources, intelligence, air power, medevac capabilities, um, like all of these things. They were force enablers to that to that unit on the ground. So it, at that time, we generally are speaking about the Northern Alliance in the Northern part of the country, although there were others um, throughout the East and South. But The Army Special Forces were fighting for sure, not to downplay the engagements that they were in, but they were a force enabler to this larger conventional Afghan force on the ground. What a great use case. That's something in a war like Afghanistan, where we have multiple priorities, we're trying to get rid of all of the opposition forces. Generally speaking, it's going to be Taliban, but we're also trying to win the support of the people and help help support, stand up, and back the local security forces. In some areas, that's border police. It might be the Afghan police. It might be the Afghan local police, kind of a tribal-type local militia. It might be the Afghan army. That role is perfect for the Army Special Forces. The problem is it's a really, really big ask to do all of that across the country. We're talking hundreds of thousands of Afghans that are going to be trained and utilized in 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 defense of their country, we don't have enough special forces to do, to do all of that and fight a war in Iraq. Now, as, as we move throughout this conflict, right, there's a war in Iraq going on. And even with both of those, it's the same thing we saw in Vietnam. We can't just put everything into these two conflicts. What if something else happens? We have to remain, we have to have some sort of reserve capability and to, to, to strike anywhere else or defend somewhere else 
as needed. So a lot of these ideal special forces missions started to blend, and we saw it on both sides. Conventional forces were slowly being asked to help train Afghan units and partner with Afghan units and conduct counterinsurgency operations and go into villages and try to figure out which villager is helpful to the U.S. and Afghans and which one is helpful to the Taliban. The conventional conventional army and Marine units are not, not well-trained in that. It's a cursory course, but they don't have the background in culture and in language that special forces soldiers do. On the other hand, we, we don't have the amount of special forces soldiers that we would really like or units, so they're asked to do maybe a little bit more than they traditionally would. So they end up doing things like movement to contact, which is essentially the mission that Staff Sergeant Robert Miller is on in Jan- on January 25th, 2008. This is – none of this is wrong, I should say. It's just that as we move into the fight and we get into these engagements, these wars – we're, we're doing everything we can. Everybody's doing everything they can. Miller and his team are not going to be ones to say, that's not something we're going to do. They're going to get after it however is needed. And what's needed on this day is, is on, on January 25th, 2008, is essentially a, essentially a movement to contact again. So it's what that means is they're going to go on a patrol, he and his team members, along with at least 15 Afghan military personnel into this area known as the Gordish Valley to confirm or deny enemy presence. Now, how are you going to confirm or deny enemy presence? A lot of times that means you come into some sort of engagement. And this is not uncommon in Afghanistan. You can't, you know, part of the challenge is you can't tell if they're an enemy, if they're just sitting in their house watching you. But if they pick up a weapon and start shooting, that's a pretty clear indication. We've just confirmed enemy activity in the Gordish Valley. And, and you move on from there. So Miller and his team start moving into the valley on January 25th. And in conjunction with some, some uh, intelligence assets, they're able to identify a couple fighting positions that are dug in kind of across this. You know, every one of these valleys has some sort of water feature, either dried or active running through it. Some cases it's a giant river and hard to pass. Others, it's more like a stream. The Gordesh has a little bit of an area, little water feature running down the middle. Um, and across this stream, they can see that there are, uh, some enemy fighters dug into fighting positions, ready to engage them. And of course, before long, that engagement kicks off. Miller is in a, um, is in a Humvee, he's in a truck. And on that truck, he has a Mark 19 automatic grenade launcher. So it is a, well, it's an automatic grenade launcher. It shoots grenades that are the size of, you know, I you know, say a salt shaker because I ha- I have some kind of funny salt shakers that are shaped like Mark 19 rounds, but you know, three, four inches long, um, kind of like a small, what are the, uh, the six ounce Coke cans you can get? Have you ever seen those in the grocery store where instead of the kind of the small six pack, think of it about that size, kind of the small six pack of cans. That's about the size of a Mark 19 round. And it pops those things out pretty quick. It's high explosive and it goes a pretty substantial distance. It's a nasty weapon to be on the other end of. That is what Miller is manning in the turret of his Humvee. Starts laying down rounds into what's estimated to be 15 to 20 enemy fighters across this area, kind of tucked back in this little valley. But from his position where he's able to see the enemy engaging them, he's firing rounds and is able to help direct airstrikes under their position. 
some airstrikes come in or some aircraft come in, conduct the strikes, the engagement stops and they decide they're going to go conduct a battle damage assessment. Now, this is another unique part of these conflicts that we could just bomb locations all day long, but you miss out on any sort of intelligence you could gather from the site. So in a perfect world, after a strike, you have friendly troops there on the ground that are picking up intelligence. Things like, how about a phone? You know, we, we tend to think that if a, a bomb hits a building, that everybody is just, that everything is just evaporated, but it's really not the case. You, you can recover phones, computers, documents. It's not even like the building's going to be on fire. So there's a lot of things you can pull from that building. You can, maybe there's identification cards on those that were killed. Maybe you find out once you get there, there's nobody there in the first place or they ran out. There's a lot of reasons to want to do a battle damage assessment, but the enemy knows that and has traditionally not made that an easy thing to do. An easy thing, an easy way for that to work is after the strike, everybody disappears. And in some areas of Afghanistan, they would ring that area with such a level of improvised explosive devices that by the time by moving to that area, you're going to step on mines and kill more of your soldiers. It's, again, it's the kind of thing, if you put yourself in the enemy's shoes, why would they not do that? Of course they're going to do that. They're only going to shoot from areas that when you try to get to those areas, you have a hard time. Well, Miller is going to lead this dismounted patrol. They have to go up the valley a little bit, not very far, to cross a bridge to come back down. And it's kind of this, you know, this cut in the mountainside that they're going to look into relatively steep on both sides. Miller, remember we were talking about how, how well-trained these special forces soldiers are and differently trained. Another way to put it, Miller is conversational in Pashto, which is a language spoken in mostly in Southern Afghanistan, but the soldiers that he's working with on this patrol, at least enough of them speak Pashto to where he can kind of brief the Afghans. Hey, here's what we're going to do. And what you'd see in that instance then is, is Miller is going to be moving and tied in more closely with the Afghans. He's still going to have his radio, but he's going to be working right with the Afghans on this patrol with his guys a little further back, kind of providing support, if you will. And he briefs the platoon, briefs the Afghan platoon. They start moving and he's right up front and point kind of um, think of it like he's the U S platoon leader for this Afghan platoon in a sense. They move across the valley, they get into, they move across the the water feature, they get into this little cut in the mountainside, and as they enter it, an insurgent, an enemy fighter steps out from behind a rock, yells, Miller cuts him down, but it opens up this near ambush, some places 20 meters away, an estimated 100 to 150 Taliban fighters are tucked in along this hillside and just start laying down heavy heavy volumes of fire into Miller and his squad, you know, call it mini platoon of Afghans in the valley below. Now it's again, Miller out in front with his 15 Afghan partners down below. And then not very far behind, you know, hundred meters or so are the rest of his ODA, his, his, the rest of his special forces team. And they all are caught in this area 
where the enemy can just rain down fire on top of them. And in some cases, you'd be looking at, you know, if, if everybody knew that there were enemy on those hillsides, you wouldn't walk underneath them, right? But this is one of the challenges in Afghanistan is you have to get to these certain places and you can't assume that the enemy is everywhere at all times, especially after an engagement where you probably killed a few of them. You have to take some level of risk. And the level of risk here, as we're looking back, is walking into this relatively steep valley where the enemy had um, overwatch and just started pouring down fire. Without hesitation, as his men are caught in the kill zone, Miller radios his position, gives the position to his teammates of where the enemy are, where he is, where the enemy are. And with his squad automatic weapon, his M249 saw, starts laying down suppressive fire and orders his Afghan partners to move back, move out of the kill zone. It's it's step back essentially to the last covered and concealed position. So a little bit back. As they're doing that, they're at a risk, right? It's always a risk as you move backwards out of an area. That's when you're most uh, most vulnerable, most susceptible to being hit by enemy fire, unable to defend yourself as, as best possible. So Miller assaults directly into the enemy fire to distract him. By doing that, what he does is this enemy force, they don't stop shooting at everybody else, but they've got this crazy American running at him now, firing very effectively his M249 saw and killing quite a few Taliban fighters in the process. A lot of the enemy fighters shift their focus to this one target that now is closer, is not taking the cover that some of these other people are, and is killing their fellow soldiers. So Miller draws a lot of fire as he moves up the hillside towards these enemy positions. He moves from position to position from generally never very well concealed, almost the entire time exposed to enemy fire. And over the course of this short fight, as his teammates move back out of the kill zone, Miller in relatively short order, again, assaulting up the hill, kills 10 Taliban fighters, wounds dozens more and clears out this whole area to the right side of the engagement that allows his team to consolidate, come online and begin to push back the enemy assault or or at least hold their own in the enemy assault. As Miller does that, and as he's kind of opened up this gap for his team to survive right away, you know, the deadliest part of that ambush is the, the right away. He's allowing his team to survive that initial contact in the process is hit by enemy fire and killed at the age of 24. Now, because his team was able to consolidate, they have a little more cover and concealment. They're able to start calling in enablers, artillery, aircraft, um, fixed wing, rotary wing support. And they are able to um, end the battle maybe is a way to say it. You know, these type of engagements, there's not a named battle here. It's just you fight for a while, you kill some of the enemy fighters, you go out and recover your fallen brother. Staff Sergeant Robert Miller, they're able to go out and, and get him off the mountainside and pull him back. And then the U.S., the joint U.S. and Afghan unit moved back to their vehicles and exited the area. Now, for his actions that day, because he charged forward directly into enemy fire, charged into... I mean, you know, it's, it's always hard figuring out exactly how many enemy fighters are on that hillside. Call it 20, right? Call it one-fifth of the estimated amount. He's charging headfirst into 20, but it wasn't 20. It's was probably closer, 
closer-ish to the hundred mark. It, it's it's unbelievable to think about moving into one hundred people aiming their weapons at you, trying to kill you, and you have the ability to lie down or move behind a rock or retreat with your guys and roll the dice with them. Remember, if he turns and runs, just like or you know maybe not turns and runs, but turns and moves out of the kill zone, he is just as likely as the rest of his guys to get hit. Not more, not less, just as likely. But by charging forward and making himself a target, he increases his odds of getting hit, but reduces the odds for the rest of his guys. And that's exactly what happened. His actions that day, charging into enemy fire, saved the lives of seven American Special Forces soldiers that were on his team and the 15 Afghans that were part of that patrol. And for that action in 2000. The action that took place on January 25th, 2008, Staff Sergeant Robert Miller would be awarded posthumously in 2010, the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.